Startle us, O God, with your truth. Open us to your love. Enliven us with your ancient stories still alive for us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's sermon is called On Guard Against Greed, following on those words of Jesus found in verse 15 of this morning's reading. It's a story some of you will have heard before. It's known by some as the parable of the rich fool. As Jesus often does in response to a question from the crowd, he tells a story to make the point. It's called a parable. There once was a man, he says, who was rich and a fool. That's all we're told about him. This man's land has a particularly good year, and he finds himself with more grain than he knows what to do with. His solution is to tear down the barns that he has, the ones that have always been big enough in the past, and to build bigger barns so that he can store his increased wealth. Satisfied with his plan, he intends to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Telling this story, Jesus warns his listeners to be on guard against greed, for it turns out that the man in the parable is a fool. He will not be relaxing, eating, drinking, or making merry, because he's dead. He dies that very night. Jesus' parable is a simple story, and it becomes a convenient one, not only for warning against greed, but for talking about the fragility of life and the old adage about wealth that you can't take it with you. It's hard to argue with much of anything in this story. Some folks may wish to talk about its suggestion that saving is somehow a bad idea, but that's really very much beside the point Jesus is making here. It's a simple story, except that it's not simple at all. There are so many angles to this story and so many modern examples and other ancient Bible stories that this story brings to mind and is supposed to. And those other examples begin to show us the real complexity of this simple tale Jesus tells in a very careful way. Perhaps the easiest way to see the complexity in this story is to begin with a modern example about ourselves. The modern equivalent of this ancient story about building barns is, anyone have a guess? Self-storage. Self-storage. The place where a modern Americans put the stuff we can no longer fit in our barns. Self-storage is a $38 billion industry in our country. 144,000 employees work in over 50,000 facilities to provide self-storage to one out of 11 Americans at an average cost of $91 a month. Even during the Great Recession, the self-storage industry continued to grow and remained a great 
real estate bet. So, the parable of the rich fool who stores up in barns. It's relevant, at least, but why am I calling it complicated? Would Jesus not give the same simple warnings against greed in 2019 in response to self-storage? How does the story become complicated? Well, maybe he would give the same advice, except that there's another equally powerful phenomenon in our culture today, and it's called downsizing. And most studies suggest that given the choice, more Americans prefer to downsize when moving rather than moving to a similar or larger sized home. Upkeep and repair costs, time sunk into caring for a large home, environmental impact of that home, and also the desire to age in place, these are all things that factor in. And all of that is to say nothing of the tiny house movement in which people really want to downsize. And the situation is complicated because these are not just contrary movements at opposite ends of a continuum. They are about many of the same people. Plenty of folks rent self-storage in order to downsize. Whether they are retirees moving from a house to an apartment or millennials trying to fit into a small place they can afford in the city, the situation is further complicated because plenty of people who want to downsize can't figure out how to do it. Put aside for a moment the challenge of getting rid of your stuff, some folks cannot find the right place that is smaller closer to the city, closer to the kids, and is also within their price range. Our culture has found ways to complicate the idea of downsizing, to get people more stuck in the midst of trying to live more simply. So, maybe the parable of the rich fool is more complicated than we thought, It is simple in a few respects. Plenty of us know that our priorities could be more selfless. And we know that we don't live always as if this day or this night may be our last. But it kind of makes your head spin when you start to examine the challenges folks face when trying to live more simply in a culture that is anything but simple and makes simplicity very complicated. And every person's story is a little bit different than the next. And yet, there is a line at the end of the story that applies to all of us, and that can give this story of the rich fool some meaning and focus, whoever you are. At the end of the story, the very last line, Jesus challenges us to be rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? What would that mean for you? I think there are a whole range of answers to the question, how do you be rich toward God? They start to emerge when we ask more detailed questions about this story. What does it mean to be rich 
toward God? It seems like an abstract question, but it comes to life when we look at the stories of people who do it. One of the great qualities of this simple parable of the rich fool is how Jesus peppers this very short story just a few lines long with references to other Bible stories. Stories that are also about being rich toward God. I'm going to tell some of those stories this morning to make some suggestions about what it might mean to be rich toward God. I'm going to tell you three. First, the story of Joseph back in the book of Genesis. In contrast to the rich fool, you may remember that Joseph is praised for saving money. Joseph dreamed that seven years of famine were on the way in the land of Egypt. So in the good years that come first, he helps the Pharaoh to store up his grain. And when the famine comes, Joseph becomes the savior of the people. The obvious difference between these two stories is that Joseph is not saving just to increase his own comfort. He's saving to help other people who are starving. The distinction seems simple, but comparing Joseph to the rich fool, we start to see a more concrete way to respond to Jesus. The rich man is just selfish and greedy, but Joseph's way of saving has a legacy. It makes a difference to other people. He's rich toward God. And plenty of us can construct our own saving and our own giving away in a similar way. The second story. The second story is more obscure. It comes from Isaiah chapter 22. It's the original use of that common phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, that is spoken by the rich fool. In the full quote from Isaiah, the story is that the Jerusalemites, in a time of great desperation, cry out to one another, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus is quoting Isaiah when he puts those words into the mouth of the rich fool. And he's making a sharp critique when the rich fool leaves out the last words. For the rich fool, there is no tomorrow we die. There is no urgency in the rich fool's life. He has no sense of his own mortality, nor does he have any gratitude for every day that he has. So he builds these big barns and he plans to eat, drink, and be merry with no reference to the idea that this day might be his last. We learn something about Jesus when he includes this in the story. You see, Jesus was found at all kinds of feasts and social gatherings. Most of his stories are based in some kind of a gathering. Apparently, Jesus had no problem with the idea of eat, drink, and be merry. But here he suggests if you're going to do it, do so with a sense of gratitude. We should absolutely enjoy the good things of life and not spend all of our time working or taking things too seriously. The rich man is a fool because he has no gratitude. He doesn't take time to appreciate the things that he has. 
He's just going to eat, drink, and be merry because he can't think of anything else to do. Jesus says that people who realize how precious a thing life is, those people will also eat, drink, and be merry. They'll do so with people they love. They'll do so welcoming strangers who they wish to know better. They'll do so sharing what they have. Doing so out of a sense of real gratitude for your blessings is a way to be rich toward God. Here's another story. It, it comes immediately after the story of the rich fool. It's another one that might be more familiar to you. Having told his disciples to be rich toward God, Jesus then says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. I wonder if any of you remember those words. It's the beginning of that famous passage about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Right after the story of the rich fool and his barns, Jesus says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet God feeds them. Do not worry, Jesus says. It's one of his many, many stories encouraging people not to lead their lives driven by fear. Perhaps the rich fool's problem or the thing that made him foolish was not selfishness and it wasn't ignorance, but that he was afraid. How often does it happen that gaining material wealth results in the sense that one still does not have enough? or that there is now more to lose than there was before. Plenty of people who have very limited means still beat out the rich at living generously toward others. They know how to hold what they have lightly. It's often the people of means who become the people of greed, usually because they are afraid. Perhaps the rich fool used to be more generous in earlier times, but his selfishness grew along with his wealth because he feared all he had to lose. Fear in all of its forms has so many ways of making us less humane toward other people. So Jesus tells his disciples over and over and over again, do not be afraid. Because letting go of your fears is yet one more thing you can do to be rich toward God. I could go on telling these stories for a long time. There are so many other stories that come to mind in relationship to this rich fool, not because there is so much to say about a man who stored up too much grain, but because there are countless ways of being rich toward God. Perhaps you can do that in the way you save or invest. 
Perhaps you can do it in the way that you are grateful for your life each day. Perhaps you can do it by trying to be a little less fearful. I was careful in this series of sermons I'm preaching on Luke not to put this story about the rich fool right in the middle of our upcoming stewardship drive. If you preach this sermon during stewardship season, you send the message that the only way to be rich toward God is to give your money to the church. That's certainly a way to do it. But I'm much more interested in talking to you about looking for ways to be rich toward God all the time in all kinds of things that you do. That's what I want you to draw from this story. So here's a challenge. I'd like to hear your stories about people who are rich toward God. I reminded you of several stories today. I wonder if you'll tell me some of your own. During the next couple of months, if you find a way in your own life, if you observe somebody else being rich toward God, I wonder if some of you might be so bold as to tell me about it. Tell me about something you observe or experience. Send me an email, write me a letter, pick up the phone and tell me about it. Tell me about a faithful thing you've seen someone do with money or a time that you experienced someone being thankful for being alive or a way that you're managing to live life with a little less fear or any other way that you witness someone just being rich toward God. That's my challenge to you this season. I wonder who will take me up on it. Amen.